In the last episode, Jules and I talked about invalidating environments and what those can look like. And we talked a little bit about trauma responses and how people with BPD unconsciously cope with things like a perceived threat of abandonment. I wanted to dive more into trauma responses and invalidating environments with you. So off we go. Let's dive in. Quiet, not silent. Trauma responses are physical, emotional, and psychological reactions to a traumatic or even stressful event or experience. And they can vary from person to person. They can be influenced by all kinds of factors, like the type of trauma, the severity of it, and the person's previous experiences and coping strategies. In the case of someone with BPD, a perceived threat would be perceived rejection or abandonment, not just danger. Trauma responses are a normal and natural reaction to trauma. Okay, so they're not a sign of weakness and they're not a character flaw. They can be addressed through a variety of therapeutic techniques like EMDR, mindfulness-based interventions, somatic experiencing, and those are just to name a few. If you notice that you engage in these responses, please don't think you're broken or anything. I promise you're not broken. They often do develop as a result of early experiences of invalidation or neglect. So what are the four types of trauma responses and how do they manifest in people? I think that understanding the four F's can help people and professionals recognize and like respond to the unique challenges of people who've experienced trauma. And the first time I heard about the four F types was actually in uh, Pete Walker's book, CPTSD, From Surviving to Thriving. And I do recommend that book I will put out this disclaimer though, there is a bit of stigmatizing language about cluster B disorders sprinkled in there. The thing is, the rest of the book is great and has been really helpful for me, especially in learning about the 4F types and understanding the way I have responded to trauma and all kinds of stressful situations in my life. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, don't just try your best to ignore that cluster B stigmatizing rhetoric if you do read that book. So we're going to talk about the four F types. The four Fs are not mutually exclusive. You know, you don't just only engage in one type and that's your F type. That's just like the subtypes, you don't... People aren't meant to be pigeonholed. 
A person can exhibit different responses in different situations. Not everyone is going to experience all four Fs in response to trauma. They can manifest in a variety of ways. And those ways might not always be immediately apparent. People can also experience a combination of these responses. And that's what Pete Walker's book does. It kind of, just for simplicity's sake, it kind of like combines two different types of F responses. And people can also shift between different responses depending on the situation. So when you're going into fight mode, this response is gonna involve a tendency to become aggressive or confrontational in the face of perceived danger. And this response is characterized by a desire to fight back against the threat, to assert control in order to protect yourself. People who engage in fight mode, people who go into fight mode, they might lash out at other people. They might become violent. They might engage even in self-harm. Self-harm is kind of fighting against yourself and punishing yourself and trying to assert control, but turning that on yourself. Engaging in self-harm, in my opinion, would be considered fight mode. The second mode is flight mode. So on the flip side to fight mode, flight mode is the tendency to avoid or flee from the perceived danger, right? You have a desire to escape the situation in order to seek safety, to minimize your exposure to whatever threat there is. So this can look like isolating yourself from other people. It can look like engaging in forms of escapism, like substance use. Video game addiction. That's a big one. When I was doing my game design degree, um, that was a huge thing. Having the tendency to run away from difficult situations. Um, or like difficult conversations. Like ghosting. Ghosting is flight mode. Ghosting is flight mode. I have a huge problem with ghosting. Oh my god. Freeze mode. This response involves the tendency to become immobile or to obviously freeze in response to perceived threats. So this one is characterized by a feeling of being overwhelmed, right? Feeling helpless, right? So someone who is engaged in freeze mode, they might feel paralyzed and frozen with fear. And this can look like difficulty making decisions. This can look like dissociating or checking out during stressful situations. So if you find during very stressful and difficult and heated conversations or times of conflict, you check out and people often have to ask you like, hey, are you even listening? Like, are you even paying attention? Because you don't even seem like you're even the, like here right now. You might be in freeze mode. And finally, fawn mode. The fawn response. This response involves appeasing or pleasing others in response to the perceived threat. You might feel like you can't escape 
and so you have to get through it by people-pleasing, right? It's characterized by this desire to be agreeable in order to avoid conflict, to seek the approval of others. For example, they might struggle with setting boundaries. You turn into a doormat. You have a tendency to people-please. You feel overly responsible for the needs and feelings of others. You minimize your own needs in or and focus on others' needs in order to survive. You minimize your own needs. I mentioned before that a lot of people think that quiet BPD is only fawn response. They are related. They are very similar. I will point out, though, that people with quiet BPD don't just engage in fawn response. Like, for me, I have engaged in all four of these responses depending on the situation. I have worked through fawning, so I, I don't fawn as much. still kind of have trouble with it. I notice that I have a, an issue with flight. I have an issue with freeze. Um, and sometimes I can get into fight mode as well. So, so how are the fawn response and, and quiet BPD similar? Mm, the fawn response and the quiet subtype, they can be related because both of them involve like a tendency to, you know, prioritize the needs and feelings of others over your own needs and wants. Struggling with feelings of worthlessness, insecurity, having a deep fear of abandonment, that's quiet subtype. And then in order to cope with those feelings, they will engage in a fawn response. They'll avoid conflict by being overly accommodating. Right? That's where the, those having shitty boundaries and being a doormat comes in. Having to seek validation from others that are the potential threat. Honestly, and I'm speaking from personal experience, it might be so bad that you engage in the fawn response, like, proactively. To, like, you're trying to prevent the threat from even happening by fawning. Being super agreeable, being overly accommodating, people-pleasing to your own detriment when you, like, let's say when you get to know someone new, like when you make a new friend or something. It can almost be seen as, like, love bombing. I hate that term, but it can almost be seen as that. Like, it might be perceived as that, but it's more so, like, fawning in order to prevent the threat of abandonment. So there isn't even a perceived threat of abandonment happening. It's like a preventative measure. So not all people who exhibit the fawn response have BPD, right? Like you, anyone can exhibit the fawn response, honestly. And not all individuals with BPD exhibit quiet subtype, of course. This is, we know this. Um, or the fawn response. But recognizing the potential overlap 
it can be helpful for understanding and addressing those unique challenges that people with these experiences face. Where does a fawn response come from? The fawn response is believed to develop as a coping mechanism in response to chronic or repeated experiences of stress and threat or trauma during your childhood. So a person may develop a fawn response if they grew up in an environment that was very unpredictable or unstable or even threatening in some way, right? And this goes really for any of the F-types. They learned that the best way to survive was to appease others or avoid conflict. Your brain decided, hey, this works so that I keep surviving this environment. I'm gonna keep doing this, even though you don't want to. It doesn't matter if you don't want to. I, I'm the brain, I'm gonna keep doing this because this is keeping you alive. We're just gonna keep doing this. So some examples of environments that may contribute to that include things like a really authoritarian household, you know, where there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of punishment or control as a means of discipline, right? And then you learn that you must appease others in order to avoid punishment or abuse. Could be a neglectful household, right? Where they're emotionally unavailable. You know, it might be an environment where child feels like they have to be hyper vigilant they have to be attuned to the needs of others they have to anticipate the needs of their caregivers in order to get their needs met their emotional needs obviously a traumatic household right if you're exposed to traumatic experiences where you feel like you have to appease whomever is engaging in that threat in order to avoid conflict in order to s stay safe and get through it that's that's how that trauma response can be so deeply rooted chaotic households you know households where there's just a lot of overall conflict and instability things are very unpredictable you know um, feeling like you have to constantly adapt to changing circumstances kind of get that hypervigilance going. You have to be attuned to the needs of others. You have to anticipate things before they happen. And so you will do that in any way you can. And some sometimes that can be through fawning in order to ma maintain some sense of safety or stability. Might have been a way to be proactive about your unstable environment, right? So in these kinds of environments, a child is gonna learn to adapt by using the fawn response as a way to cope with the stress or the fear or the trauma that they're experiencing. Over time, this response can become a habitual pattern of behavior that you carry into adulthood, even when the original threat or trauma is not there anymore. And this, I'm just using fawn response as an example, but this really goes for the other ones as well. These are examples of environments that can cultivate, that can foster BPD. Many people who experience childhood trauma, they might question the validity of their trauma. 
if they were never like blatantly abused what if i was never hit like what if people had it just way worse than me other kids have definitely had it way worse than me i've heard so many stories of kids having it way worse than me and blah 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 my childhood wasn't that bad so why i feel like i'm not valid that's what went through my mind when i was first diagnosed you know like i didn't have an overly traumatic or abusive childhood i was never physically like i was never abused we can talk about other forms of an invalidating environment we can go kind of down the spectrum like how can emotional abuse and neglect also have a significant impact on a person's well-being well they can be just as damaging as physical abuse right emotional abuse involves any like intentional or repeated behavior that causes emotional harm things like belittling or name calling gaslighting and finally invalidating a person's emotions emotional neglect involves failing to provide a child with emotional support and nurturing that they need like ignoring their emotional needs or consistently just invalidating their feelings and while physical abuse is often more visible right it might leave visible scars emotional abuse and neglect can be a lot more insidious right it's a lot more difficult to recognize and people who experience emotional abuse or neglect may grow up feeling like very oftentimes they feel unloved or unwanted just completely invisible and they struggle a lot with low self-esteem trust issues challenges forming healthy relationships right and the relationships thing is a big one if you don't struggle with forming healthy relationships, it might be confusing for you as to why people have such a hard time, why people with BPD or why people with just childhood trauma or whatever struggle to form healthy relationships. Well, it's because when you're not taught how to process your emotions and express them in healthy ways and work through them, how are you going to be able to have the capacity to handle someone else's emotions how are you going to be able to co-regulate with someone if you can't if you have if you literally struggle with your own emotional regulation like of course if you don't learn if no one taught you how to regulate your emotions and process them of course you're going to struggle with relationships with other people it's tough so just know that no form of abuse or neglect is more or less valid than another. I know it can often feel like sometimes things can be like this weird struggle contest. In the media, like either, you know, on the news or over social media, there are a lot of stories out there that can be sensationalized when someone tells like a very extreme story of things that happened to them when they were a child but it, the thing is extreme things and stories get sensationalized very often and because those things get a lot of attention it makes it seem like those are the only stories that are valid those are the only kinds of trauma that are, that are valid and that's just not true yes it is valid but just because you didn't go through something just as bad or worse, it doesn't mean that you're not valid. 
doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense that you're struggling the way you are, right? So then we can move down the spectrum to emotional invalidation. What does that look like? Emotional invalidation is when a person's feelings or emotions are dismissed. They're ignored or rejected. And it can be particularly harmful to people with a heightened emotional vulnerability. When you have BPD, you have a genetic predisposition to a heightened emotional vulnerability. All abuse is invalidating, first of all. And not all invalidation is abusive. Do you know what I'm saying? So invalidation is on a spectrum. And abuse is on the extreme side of that spectrum. But regardless, all emotional invalidation makes people feel pretty shitty. What even is emotional invalidation? Like, what can that look like? I'll just give you a few examples. So this is not an exhaustive list, but here's, like, the most annoying examples. <laughs> These phrases sometimes, like, ugh, I'm gonna, I'm triggered. I'm triggered. I'm gonna get freaking triggered by some of these phrases, but uh, you're here with me, so it's fine. It's okay. We're in this together. Minimizing. So downplaying the significance of a person's feelings. For example, you're going to hear phrases like, it's not that big of a deal. You're overreacting. I know you've been told before that probably that you're overreacting when you know you're not, right? You're not overreacting. You want to see an overreaction? I'll show you an overreaction. Hate that shit. Dismissing. Dismissing a person's feelings or emotions as unimportant or unworthy. So things like you're being too sensitive. Oh, hate that too. Or just get over it. Why can't you just get over it? Hate that shit. Don't say that. Don't say that to people. That's rude. That's rude as hell. Judging. So criticizing or judging a person for their emotions or their reactions. Get ready for this. Saying you shouldn't feel that way. Or you have no right to be upset. Oof. Hate that one. Acting like they're the emotion police. Okay. Shut up. What are you saying? I have no right to be upset. Okay. Well, you're wrong. I do. I can feel whatever I... My brain is making me feel right now. I am upset. Negating. Denying the validity of a person's feelings or emotions. So, for example, saying, that's not how you should feel. Or the classic, you're being ridiculous. Or another classic, well, this wouldn't bother me, so why is it bothering you? Why is this bothering you so much? It wouldn't bother me. I'm not bothered. Why are you bothered? Okay, you want an award? You don't get an award for being unbothered by things that are bothering other people. Get out of here with your negating, fool. Okay, last example I have for you is blaming or, like, deflecting. Holding a person responsible for their emotions or, like, blaming them for the situation that caused those emotions. So, for example, saying things like, well, you brought this on yourself, you did this, 
or it's it's not my fault that you feel this way. It's not my fault that you feel this way. Bro. Okay. We're like emotion lawyering here, I guess. I don't know what this is, but it's not my fault that you feel this way. What is the point of saying this? Can you guys tell I'm so, I'm like so heated. These are not even a real person saying this. This is just me saying examples and I'm triggered. So emotional invalidation can be intentional, but sometimes, oftentimes it can be unintentional. Like a lot of people at times don't know that they're doing this. And in either case, it's damaging. It sucks. It's damaging to a person's well-being and their mental health. If you are constantly invalidated over and over again, you're taught that your emotions don't matter. You're taught that you shouldn't even feel emotions or you're going to be emotionally rejected. That's an invalidating environment. That can foster BPD. So when your emotions are invalidated, you might, like, people might feel like their experiences and their feelings aren't, aren't valid or worthy of attention. And that can lead to feelings of shame, right? That can lead to internalized shame and self-doubt and emotional isolation. And that's why it's important to validate and support the emotions of people around us in our, like, little social circle whether it's your family or your chosen family, doesn't matter. But particularly if they're experiencing a difficult time or they have a heightened emotional vulnerability. And I'm not saying that people need to validate the invalid, okay? We don't need to be someone's emotional caretaker. Like, we do often need to learn how to validate ourselves. If people around us don't have the capacity to validate our emotions... Right? And we can learn how to accept and validate and be mindful of our emotions when someone else can't. So how does quiet BPD relate to emotional invalidation? Emotional invalidation tends to reinforce their habit of invalidating their own emotions and prioritizing the needs of others over their own. They may feel really ashamed or guilty for their emotional reactions or even just having emotions and that leads to further self-doubt and further self-criticism it like it really feeds their inner critic unfortunately and people with bpd not just quiet bpd of course they might show a range of responses to this experience like the fawn response or like dissociation Right? Feeling a detachment from their thoughts and feelings and things around them as a way of coping with overwhelming emotions or trauma. Because when you have BPD, oftentimes you've experienced early childhood trauma or invalidation even that was just too overwhelming to process. And that's where those trauma responses come in. That's unfortunately how they turn into patterns of behavior for us. But we can, we can kind of unlearn them and replace them with new tools. So how can you recognize and address the trauma responses and that emotional invalidation within yourself? 
I'll tell you kind of what I do. Because we don't gatekeep here. I can't tell you every single thing, but I'll just give you a rundown. For me, like, it's important to recognize the signs, first of all. So knowing is half the battle. Educating yourself about those signs of trauma responses. And when you're being invalidating to yourself. Or when someone else is being invalidating to you. You can then be like, nope, they're invalidating me, so I'm going to validate myself. You can notice things about the trauma responses like you can notice things like dissociation you know or hypervigilance or you can notice about yourself like a tendency to avoid conflict right knowing how you tend to respond to these to when you're triggered that can really help you identify when those trauma responses are occurring and then you can start to practice taking steps to address them so that's where practicing self-awareness can come in paying attention to your own emotional reactions and responses to situations just learning about yourself and not judging how you're responding and i know that's easier said than done but just something like journaling or or just taking some time to reflect on your emotions and how they're affecting you I find journaling does really help and you don't need to it doesn't need to be like this fancy bullet journal or anything how I started journaling is I tried that artist's way thing where you write three pages in the morning and you just basically thought dump like there's no structure to it, it it's pretty much like a mindfulness practice you're being mindful of the thoughts in your head and then you're making sure to write them all down and you're just dumping them out not paying attention to spelling not paying attention to grammar whatever you just dump all of your thoughts out on this paper until you have filled up three pages and then you can kind of take some time later to reread it and be like huh wow i'm like really noticing that this is a recurring thought in response to this particular situation right I recommend it. I think it's really helpful if you're having trouble just like simply taking time to reflect. Might be helpful. Try it out. Next thing you can move into is once you're self-aware, once you're once you've kind of gained some self-awareness of what's going on there, you can validate your emotions. Right? You can practice validating your own emotions and you can practice validating other people's emotions. And a lot of people ask me, they're like, how are you so good at validating people? You are just a really validating person. Practice. This did not happen overnight. This is a literal skill. I promise. I was not always good at validating people. Or myself. It took a lot of practice. Just like little tiny baby micro steps every day. Just practicing. Right? And this can involve acknowledging and just accepting your emotions without judgment or criticism and i know it's easier said than done when you struggle with things like internalized shame and guilt just even saying out loud to yourself when you're feeling an emotion like recognizing the emotion being like i am sad and then instead of being like well why the why am i even sad right now like this is ridiculous that's a judgment that's a criticism just be like i'm sad this sucks right now 
this really sucks right now. I'm not feeling good. I am not having a good time right now. You don't even, you don't even have to like do, you don't even have to therapize it or whatever. You don't have to be like, I'm noticing that I'm feeling really sad. You don't have to do this for it to be correct or helpful. Literally me validating my emotions is me just sitting in my room and being like, wow, this fucking sucks. I am not having a good time right now, bro. Damn. I feel like shit. Emotionally. I feel like a plastic bag floating in the wind. Validate your emotions. And then you can address the root causes. Right? You can delve even deeper. You can work to address the root causes of those trauma responses. And this one can oftentimes involve therapy. It's better, it's okay to ask for help. And therapy can help with this kind of stuff. Like, all, any kind of trauma-informed therapy, that's really good for addressing those root causes. So what if no one's around to validate us? Or what if the people around us are very emotionally invalidating? At that point, you do need to learn how to validate yourself and practice compassion for yourself. So how do we do that? Self-validation and compassion are super important for building things like resilience and just your emotional well-being. So I'll list some things off. Like I said, we don't gatekeep. Here you go. Um, this is not an exhaustive list. This is just what I do. First one, practice mindfulness. Don't hate me. I know people don't like mindfulness. I don't, I didn't either. Hear me out. I used to think that mindfulness was sitting on your butt and crossing your legs and chanting and just like no thinking and suppressing your emotions that's not what it is <laughs> that's not what it is yes you can meditate that way absolutely super valid but it is not suppressing your emotions mindfulness involves being present and aware of your thoughts without judgment okay so this can help you develop a greater understanding of your own emotional experiences and to develop a sense of self-awareness. Recognizing your strengths. And this can really help you build a sense of self-confidence and self-worth. And it can be really hard to recognize your strengths when you have a lot of self-doubt and a lot of insecurity. A lot of people with BPD have a hard time accepting compliments. I used to have a really hard time accepting compliments. You know when someone compliments you? Let's say you, you're, like, an artist. And someone says, oh, wow, that's, like, really good. And your first response is, oh, no, this actually really sucks. Like, this actually really sucks. Like, there's so much stuff that's out there that's way better than this. Like, that's, this, is, this is really shitty. You don't need to minimize yourself and engage in, like, the negative self-talk to be humble. Humility is not the complete absence of being proud of yourself, right? You're allowed, I'm giving you permission, I'm giving you permission to be proud of yourself for things that, I don't care if you think they're trivial, I'm giving you permission to be proud of yourself for the small things. 
and I'm going to tell you some small things right now. I'm proud of myself. I'm just going to be a little bit vulnerable. I struggle to maintain my personal hygiene because I have major depression as well, and I have PTSD. Showering, unfortunately, really triggers my PTSD. Um, it sends me into a flashback. And so I have a really hard time mustering up the emotional energy to go and take a shower. And so sometimes I will go like 10 days without showering. And I know I always feel better after a shower. But it's still really hard for me to do that. You know, and I accept that. I, I have just accepted that. It's okay. You know, it is what it is. So I think it's important to be proud of things that a lot of us take for granted that are really hard for people like us to do. There are also times when I feel proud of myself for just brushing my teeth because I also struggle to brush my teeth regularly. For the people that don't get it, you're probably going to think that's gross. I don't care. I know there's people out there who do get it. When you brush your teeth, just, I think you should be proud of yourself. I'm giving you permission. I'm proud of myself when I brush my teeth, that I did it, that I remembered to do it. When I do it two days in a row, wow. I'm like super proud of myself. I'm like, yo, let's get this streak going. When I went to the dentist and got my teeth cleaned, and I somehow magically did not have any cavities for some reason, I don't understand, but I just didn't. I was super proud of myself. I was like, holy shit. Whoa. Okay. Maybe I'm being too hard on myself. I don't know. Like, be proud of yourself for mundane things. And also be proud of yourself. You don't need to be humble when you're just by yourself in your room. No one's judging. You can gas yourself up in your room. Try it. If you finished your degree... I don't care what your mark was, just, just finish your degree. Being like, wow, I just fucking finished my degree. Look at you go. When I finished my degree, I was like, oh my god, look at you go. Seven years ago, you set out for a game design degree, took you two years to start it, and then now here you are. You finished your degree through a strike, like a college strike, and a pandemic, and an abusive relationship. Like, look at you fucking go, and you still finish your degree? Winner. Winner shit. You finished, you got through PHP? Winner shit. You took your meds today? Winner shit. Brush your teeth today? Winner shit. Got through the day? Winner shit. Please don't feel bad for doing, seriously, just, like, the bare minimum to just get through the day. Because a lot of us will not survive the day. So I'm proud of you if you just get through today. So recognize your strengths. It's also important to challenge negative self-talk. I used to make a lot of jokes about dying. You know, like, I should just die. <laughs> Lol, I should just die. And... I noticed that was really enforcing 
that feeling of wanting to die. And it was really affecting my view of myself. It was really reinforcing this idea that I was worthless. And so I tried to stop making those jokes. And it actually helped a lot by not making those jokes anymore. It's important to pay attention to self to negative self-talk and challenge it with more positive affirmations. And you don't have to do those fake affirmations. Like, be authentic when you do positive affirmations, okay? So if you're not about that, like, I'm manifesting, or like, I don't chase, I attract, like, whatever. If you're not into that, you don't have to do that. An affirmation for me, when I'm having the thought that I am, that I'm useless, that I'm worthless, I'm feeling hopeless, I try to think about, okay, well, how do I challenge that? I'm not worthless. I've actually done a lot of good things for other people. I've done a lot of good things for myself. I take care of my dogs. If you have a dog, you're their world. You're not worthless at all, right? So thinking about that and trying to reframe your negative thoughts that pop up about yourself and building a more positive self-image, it takes practice, but it does make a difference. Every time I think those kinds of judgmental thoughts about myself, or these like really self-deprecating things about myself, I think about what my child self would say if someone were saying that to me right now. Or, or would you say that to your child self? Would your child self want to hear that from someone? Do you think those things about them? Because it's not true about them. They're not worthless. And neither are you because they're not. If my child self saw someone talking to me in that negative way, they'd feel so sad. They'd be like, why would you say that? Your child self, if your child self could meet yourself right now, They'd be amazed. They'd be like, whoa, wow, you're amazing. You probably don't think that about yourself right now, but your child self, if they met you, they'd be like, wow, wow, incredible. If my child self met me, they'd be like, oh my God, you're still alive? Wow, you're a winner. Oh my God, incredible, you're so cool. I know that. I know that for a fact. Same goes for your child self. Practicing self-care is a big one. Social media has, I feel like it's ruined self-care. It's turned it into this like clean girl aesthetic, you know, Um, where self-care is just like wearing a comfy hoodie that covers like half your hand and your nails are perfectly done and you have like a homemade matcha oat milk latte in one of those fancy cups and you have like just a gray and white apartment like condo with tons of natural lighting and a white couch and white everything and minimal like do you know what I'm saying you know and then and that's self-care and you're practicing like your skincare routine in your fancy bathroom with your like Sephora that is not how most people live Um, social media, Instagram ruined self-care. Self-care is just things that nourish your mind and your body, like exercise, 
you know, eating things that make you feel good on the inside and getting enough rest, practicing sleep hygiene. And it's easier said than done. Like I said, like social media like seems to think seems to make people think that exercise can only be being like regularly going to the gym and weightlifting and doing squats for like an hour every single day at like 5 a.m. And that's just not what it is. I will never go to the gym regularly. I've never been able to. I hate gyms. I hate the smell of them. I hate just not having privacy. No hate to people who go to gyms. Honestly, if you do do that stuff, love to see it. Love it. Support it. It's just not for me. And so I prefer getting exercise by going outside, taking my dogs for a walk, like a brisk walk. Walking really fast, like at a good solid pace. Like we go on two walks a day for like 15-ish minutes each. And it gives me an incentive to go outside and get some fresh air and some exercise and that took a while to build that habit right like you're not going to be able to do these self-care things to an extreme level right off the bat it's just habit building taking your meds is self-care drinking water is self-care resting when your body says i just really want to sleep a lot today When I normally don't do that, I just want to sleep. Self-care can be taking some time to make the phone calls or make the appointments that you've needed to for a while. So getting health insurance so that I could get some medication. That's self-care. So that I could have some dental coverage to go to the dentist and take care of my teeth. That's self-care. So it's not this, it's not always this clean girl aesthetic. It's, it's mostly tedious stuff that is, it's like upkeep of your body and your mind. You know what else self-care is? Self-care is hanging out with your friends when you're lonely. That's a need that you're taking care of. That's self-care. Just saying. There's so many things can look like self-care. Practicing self-compassion. Treating yourself with the same kindness and compassion that you would offer to a friend. And that's where that negative self-talk challenging comes in. Would you talk to a friend the way that you negatively talk to yourself? Would you tell your friend that they're a piece of shit? Or that they're worthless? That's not a friend. What about your own struggles? When a friend comes to you with their struggles... You know, when a friend confides in you and you ask them, hey, how are you doing? And they say, well, I'm actually not doing that great. Um, Something bad happened and I'm not feeling good about it. You know, when they confide in you with that and you acknowledge their struggle and be like, oh my God, bro, that sucks. I'm so sorry. Like, how can I help you? You know, and they're like, well, I, you know, I just need some, I think it'd be really good for us to hang out. You know, I'm feeling really lonely. Let's go to a movie or something. I would just really like to be with my friend right now. I think that'd be really good for me. And then doing that, you should offer yourself the same acknowledgement and the same comfort and the same support. If something bad happens, you'd say, oh my God, bro, it's okay. It's going to be okay. That that really sucks, but it, and it's going to be okay, and, and I'm here for you. Treat yourself like you would treat a friend. Be nice to yourself. You deserve to be nice to yourself. 
And you can also set healthy boundaries that help you prioritize your own needs. Saying no to things that don't line up with your values or your needs. That's a, a good way to practice self-compassion. Um, and I know it's really hard for people with BPD to do that. And here's why. is because when you struggle with identity disturbance, sometimes you don't know your own values. Your values aren't really set in stone. You don't necessarily know what aligns with your values or your needs. And so it can be really hard to say no to things that don't align with your values or your needs because you don't know what they are. Trust your intuition. Trust your gut. Try, try to do that. And if, if you don't feel like doing something, if you feel like, mm, I don't feel so good about doing that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not crazy about doing this. It's a good sign to say no. Try to practice saying no. If you're an extreme people pleaser, I know it's hard. That's where, It's just practice. Practice saying no to tiny things first. And then build it up. And you get braver and braver saying no. Prioritizing activities that bring you joy and fulfillment. So if someone you don't really want to hang out with asks you to do something and you feel like, oh, if I say no, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me. So maybe I shouldn't say no. Okay, well, you can say no. You don't even like that person that much. So practice saying no. By practicing self-validation in little tiny ways like this and compassion, you can build greater resilience. You can build your emotional well-being. You can develop a stronger relationship with yourself. And be patient when you're practicing. Okay, it takes time. You're, you're not going to be good at it overnight. Sometimes you're going to fuck up, and that's okay. If you fuck up, just, just remember, you can try again the next day. The sun gives you endless chances to try again. What about other people? Like, if you don't have BPD, or if someone in your life doesn't have BPD, and they don't know necessarily like how to support you. Like, how can people better support and validate people with BPD? Supporting and validating people with BPD is a really important part of their healing process. A big thing is listening non-judgmentally, okay? So like listening to the person's experiences without judgment or criticism. Letting them share their thoughts and emotions without interrupting and without trying to fix it. A lot of times we know how to fix it. We do. We know how to fix it. We just are freaking out right now and we need help and we don't know how to calm down. And we don't expect you to help us calm down, but we just, I don't know, we just need to connect with someone. We just need someone to listen. We just need someone we love to listen. And that makes us feel safe. And then we can just chill out. And then we can go and solve the problem. So don't try and fix things. Just listen. And don't judge. And believe them. Next one is believe them. Believe their experiences. 
validate their emotions. Even if their experiences don't necessarily align with your own experiences, it's still important to validate their reality. And also, you can, you can validate their reality and what they're currently experiencing without validating the invalid. And you can do this without being invalidating. I hope that makes sense. So, for example, if my friend with BPD is coming to me and they're expressing that they're really stressed out about not being able to see their partner for a few weeks, right? And they're freaking right out. They're saying things like, what if they leave me? What if they find someone else? What if they cheat? You know, I'm worthless. I'm stupid. I am shitty. They're just spiraling. You don't even need to say you're not any of that. Stop being silly, right? Don't say that. At first, you might think that that's helpful. It's like not actually. It doesn't do anything. You can focus on acceptance of the emotions. Hey man, that sounds really tough to deal with right now. This must be really stressful for you. You can empathize. Try putting yourself in their shoes and understand their experiences from their perspective. I would feel really sad too if I couldn't see my partner for a long time. Like, I would miss them a lot too. I don't blame you. Right? That's a really good way to empathize. I don't blame you. That's a good phrase. I like that phrase a lot because another important part is avoiding blame and shame. Avoid blaming the other person for their experiences or making them feel like ashamed of their feelings. We already feel ashamed of our feelings, probably. I do. I already feel really embarrassed for even just having emotions and existing. It's important to validate their emotions and experiences without adding to those feelings of shame or guilt. And you can offer support if you're able to. Offering support. You can offer to, for this example, you know, you can offer to help them take their mind off of the stressful event. Maybe doing something calming together, like baking or making art or like watching a movie, playing a game together. Connecting with them in a way that isn't being their emotional caretaker, but just as a friend. So when, I'm, when I say offer support, you don't need to rescue them. Practice patience. Be patient with them as they're working through their emotions. A lot of time people with BPD know that their emotions are very intense. Because we have a hard time accepting our emotions, they just become more and more intense. So while we're trying to use coping skills, be patient as best you can. And in the long term too, like in the long run, healing from trauma can take a lot of time and effort. Okay, so it's important to be patient and supportive throughout that process. Coping skills take time to, in, to you know, internalize. Those skills take time to internalize. Occasionally, we're still going to fuck up. It doesn't help when we're, if we fuck up, Someone says, like, oh, you fucked up. Wow, what the hell? Please be patient. And I also, I thank people for their patience. So instead of saying sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I like to say thank you for your patience. That was a great phrase for me to learn to stop apologizing for things that I didn't need to apologize for. Instead of saying sorry at everything, thank you for your patience. 
Another really good thing to do, finally, is educate yourself. It's important to, for pretty much everybody, to just educate yourself about trauma and how it affects people. Because trauma responses, like I said before, they're, they're normal. If they weren't normal, your brain, people's brains wouldn't do them, to be honest. These are normal and natural responses to trauma. Educating yourself can help you understand someone's experiences and their reality a lot better. And when you understand, you can offer more effective support and you can validate someone a lot more effectively. Knowing is half the battle. So by supporting and validating someone with BPD, you can help them build resilience and work toward healing. It's good to approach that their healing journey with empathy and compassion and patience. So we talked quite a bit about trauma responses and we delved into the fawn response especially. We also talked a lot about what an invalidating environment can look like and how it can take on many different forms, not just one. And when people grow up in those types of environments, it can be really hard to learn how to validate yourself. Validation of others and especially of yourself is a skill in my opinion, and it takes a lot of practice to learn how to do it, but it's worth it. Like, you deserve to be able to show up for yourself in ways that people should have shown up for you in the past, but they couldn't. So thanks for listening. Next episode, I'm going to bring on my friend Lena, a licensed marriage and family counselor, and we're going to talk about how BPD has affected our relationships and how we can work toward having healthy ones while we solidify our sense of self. Stay tuned. Peace. Quiet, not silent. And create a perfect row in our heads. As a matter of fact, we're going over something in this past.